Hello and welcome to the Daddy Saturday podcast. I'm your host, Justin Batt. I'm also the founder and chief dad officer of Daddy Saturday and the Daddy Saturday Foundation, where it is our goal to impact 10 million fathers in the next 10 years and to end the fatherlessness epidemic. We do that by bringing you great content and a platform and a movement, in fact, where you can engage with other fathers and get great resources to help you be a better dad that can be an intentional father who raises good kids that become great adults. We ask that you tune into this podcast and subscribe. We've got amazing guests every single week for you. And man, wait until you hear who we've got on today. I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest. Uh, Dr. Warren Farrell began his career on research and gender issues in the 60s. Um, he's been at this for quite some time. He has published in over 50 countries in 15 language, languages. His books have been national bestsellers. Uh, New York Times bestsellers. He's been all over the media. In, in fact, even recently, been on Oprah and all the major networks. And he has just been a pillar in this uh, movement of the boy crisis. And his self-titled book, um, The Boy Crisis, has been a smash hit and is one of the foundational pillars that I've used in crafting some of the concepts in Daddy Saturday. It's a real pleasure to have Dr. Warren Farrell on the show today. Dr. Farrell, how are you? I'm really well, and uh, congratulations to you, too, for Daddy, Daddy Saturday as both a book and a podcast. Oh, well, thank you, sir. I, I appreciate that, and I'm just excited to have you on the show today. It's so timely as we look at the, I call it the sour state of fatherhood in our country, but, you know, really, if we, as we look around, there is a boy crisis going on, and it still exists today, and you've done so much work in the space. Um, I'd love just to, to update the listeners on some of your thoughts on what are some of the more uh, prevalent components of the boy crisis that we're seeing play out in our society today? There's so many. First of all, I looked around the world and um, as, as to what was happening in, in relation to boys and girls and men and women, and started to see that, that in 56 of the largest developed nations, developed is the key word, um, boys were falling behind girls in almost every academic subject, especially in reading and writing, which are the two biggest predictors of success. Uh, they were also falling behind uh, girls in terms of um, their life expectancy. A boy's life expectancy is male life expectancy is going down for the last three years. Uh, ne never in, our, in recorded history has life expectancy gone down for three years in a row for either gender before. Um, the um, sperm count of boys is um, being reduced by 50%. The IQs of boys are going down. The suicide rate, however, ever is going up in relation to girls. So, for example, um, at the age of uh, 10, boys and girls rarely commit suicide, and boys commit, and they commit them about equally. But between the ages of 10 to 14, boys commit suicide twice as often as girls. Between the ages of 15 and 19, they commit suicide four times as often as girls, and between the ages of 20 and 25, almost five times as often as girls. And so we have this, um, you know, this enormous um, challenge with, we, we hear about the opioid crisis, but we don't hear about the opioid crisis as being part of the boy crisis, and yet boys are twice as likely as girls to die from opioid over, uh, overdose. Uh, we hear about obesity, but boys are far more uh, subject to obesity than girls are. We hear about um, you know, the um, mass shootings uh, without realizing that mass shootings are, um, are not, you know, the, the girl, we say the mass shootings are about guns or they're about family values or they're about a divisive president. Well, girls are exposed to the same guns, the same family values and the same divisive president. And yet the girls are not doing the, um, 
the shootings the boys are. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, well, why is that? And what is the common component? The most powerful component of boys who are doing the mass shootings is not just that they're boys, uh, but that they're dad-deprived boys. Then you go over to prisoners and uh, you look at the prison population. And I think you probably know I ran for governor of California some years ago and I spoke around the uh, state on um, on uh, the uh, to prisoners and uh, found in one prison after the other administrators and judges were saying to me you know that the common denominator when i asked the question by the way they never volunteered it um i said you know um, is how what percentage of these prisoners are fatherless and you know the the off-the-cuff answer from almost everybody was about 90 percent and so, and when I spoke with these prisoners about, you know, the, what the importance of fathers um, is, uh, the response was, my God, I always thought that I'd basically, you know, I committed this crime, I deserved to be in prison, I had no use, I was sort of the, the black sheep of the family, um, pretty much everybody wanted me here, and now that I see that I'm so, that I have um, such, such an important role in the family, and I understand what I can do that can help my family develop um, more positively, um, I really am anxious to get out of prison and go back and help my children um, prevent, prevent, help prevent my children, help, help my children not make the mistakes that I made that landed me in prison. And this was, you know, these are tough prisoners and their response was filled with tears in their eyes and sometimes um, rolling down their cheeks. And it was just amazing to see that, you know, um, despite the culture of prison, which often hardens prisoners, to see the soft hearts and the desire to do well and have purpose um, and meaning. Um, and as fathers, um, the, the possibility of being effective fathers um, gave these prisoners a sense of purpose. I then looked at you know, studies of ISIS recruits and found that um, you know, the three female sociologists, for example, who did a study of ISIS recruits that were captured and put in prison in Lebanon and they were able to interview them, um, sort of uh, they, the three female sociologists after the interviews got together and they said, um, you, know, what did, you know, what did you get out of the interviews and blah, blah, boom. And one of the things that came up was, you know, a lot of the people in my group, maybe this is just an exception, you know, mentioned that they had no father or they had very, your father left when they were young or something like that. And the other people said, no, that's not just your group. It's my group as well. And then the other, yes, it's my group too. And we never even asked a question about fatherlessness all right, let's go back, create a couple of questions and go back and do the interviews again with that question being the only question that we asked. And as it turned out, that, that fatherlessness turned out to be the single biggest common denominator they were able to identify about um, the, uh, the background of, of ISIS recruits. But it was not just, in this case, it was not just the male ISIS recruits. It was also uh, the females as well, even though, of course, the female ISIS recruits are only about 10% of the whole. Unbelievable. And, you know, you, you roll those stats off like you um, recite them every day. And just, I can just tell the amount of research you've done in this space. And it's overwhelming. And, and we mentioned the sour state of fatherhood. It sounds like there's the sour state of boyhood right now as well in our country and and in developed countries for that matter. And, and some of those statistics are just, I mean, they're, they're mind boggling at the same time. And I think the one common denominator you brought out there is that the absence of the father is the key piece. And, and in my understanding of fatherlessness, there's really two forms. There's the lack of the biological father in the home, but there's also this fatherlessness where you have a physically present father, father but they're emotionally absent. And that impacts a lot of our, our boys today in particular in the home because they don't have that father that's modeling what a man should be for them. Um, is that how you see it as well? 
Yes, close to how I see it. I was a little bit surprised um, at the degree to which um, a father who was sort of present all the time, but also absent, that is emotionally distant or maybe worked on the evenings and the weekends, um, those boys did um, not turn out as badly success-wise. Now, if you take another filter, which is the filter of emotional security, then you often have problems. But many of those boys, in order to please and get the approval of the emotionally distant father, oftentimes worked very hard to do, you know, to be, you know, to get straight A's and to get the, the emotionally distant father's attention and to say, hey, dad, I'm really doing well, you know, and to break through that, that emotional distance and get some good feedback. So in some ways, the emotionally distant father um, could, uh, could, for some boys, lead to those boys becoming more successful, um, but they were successful at a price, at the price of feeling like they were always trying to get their father's approval. Now, for other boys, exactly the opposite happened. The, the emotionally distant father led to the boy feeling that he was worthless and, and, um, and not, not needing, having the, the under, underpinning of emotional security that he really needed uh, to do well. So it was more dependent upon the boy's personality uh, or core personality um, as to whether the emotionally distant father um, created uh, some good and bad, that is success, the good, bad, the emotional um, insecurity, or just uh, led to um, more uh, fundamental um, frustration and uh, low self-esteem on the part of the boys. But certainly, um, I, I, you know, there, I've, I've seen now uh, two groups of uh, two things happening around the world. And uh, notice that I say around the world. Let me just go back to the cause of this for a moment. What I found was, and the fatherlessness, since you're, you've been pinpointing the importance of fatherlessness, in the, I mentioned that in the developed nations, uh, two things were happening, I found. One was there was the, the developed nations had mastered survival to a greater degree. And so survival created freedom for the societies to be able to allow a lot of permission for divorce and a lot of permission for women to have children without being married. And so it was, a, and in those two groups of uh, population groups, those two demographics, there was a large percentage of children of divorce where the dads were, um, where the children were dad deprived. That is, the uh, the, the the divorced uh, fathers were very minimally involved with the children. The mothers had the dominant, um, uh, were the dominant caretakers. Where the where the children were dad deprived among divorced children, those were the children that were having problems in about 70 to 100 different areas, but the boys were having significantly more problems than the girls. Over to the other demographic. The other demographic was women who have children without being married, um, which is 53% of women under 30 who have children in the United States have children without being married. Now, I'm not a big thing on being married or not being married, so, um, but when I started looking at the data here, I saw that the, the children who were born to mothers who were not married, some percentage of those children were living with uh, mothers and fathers who were at least living together. Um, but those fathers on average lasted only about four years um, as an active involved father. So the issue was not marriage per se, but marriage tends to create a greater commitment that keeps fathers around for a longer period of time. And, um, and so that, and, and, it's, and it's that involvement of fathers in that group that, that made the difference between uh, children who were born to mothers without being married 
being either um, successful because they had father involvement or unsuccessful without father involvement. So then I started looking at the question as well, you know, th this, this lack of father involvement seems to hurt both boys and girls, but in almost every category, it was hurting boys more than girls. So I started asking the question, well, why is that? And one of the reasons that is that um, a girl who's brought up by a single mom at least has a same sex role model. And girls are given more permission to uh, share feelings when things bother them. If they say what's bothering them, um, uh, people are responsive and they say, they're not as likely to say, um, you know, big girls don't cry, big girls don't complain. Uh, they, they're more likely to, to, to um, uh, respond very positively to the tears and say, sweetie, what's the matter? Whereas boys are likely to, you know, keep it to themselves and that keeping it to themselves that boys tend to do, combined with a lack of father as a role model, and combined with the lack of what fathers bring to the children um, seem to make the situation a lot worse for boys than for girls. Yeah, you're really hitting on this point of, of emotional health. I'm hearing that. And it sounds like if, to your point, if there's a, a single mom with a, a daughter in the home, then there's some of that role modeling that occurs, but the absence of a father creates that dissonance in emotional health. So, you know, many of our listeners are fathers, that, a lot of parents as well, but particularly to the fathers, what, what would you recommend in terms of creating that emotional health with your children? Well, first, the first thing for a fa every father to, to do is I, I started realizing as I was doing the research for the boy crisis that basically throughout all of history, uh, we have given boys what I would call heroic intelligence, which is preparation for a short life, versus health intelligence, which is preparation for a long life and preparation for a wide range of emotional intelligence. And so historically, if you were a, prep, if you were a father and every generation had its war, and so you as a dad would say, you know, um, sweet, you know, sweetie, you're my son. Um, you know, you were gonna, um, the, 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 the Nazis look like they're threatening the world. Um, you know, the people who will be the, big, the biggest heroes of the future are the guys who go to war, join the Marines, Air Force or whatever, and, you know, fight off the, you know, the, the future enemy. And so boys learn that they, they, they'd make their father proud, they'd make their country proud, they'd make their mother proud, and that women fell in love with officers and gentlemen, not privates and pacifists. Um, and so they would you know, learn that every social bribe, the social bribe of being called hero, the social bribe of son, I'm proud of you, the social bribe of uh, wearing a uniform, the social bribe of, of cheerleaders saying, uh, first in 10, do it again to the boy that risked his life um, or risked a concussion taking a ball across a, 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 into a touchdown zone. Uh, these were all the, the social bribes we used to train boys to be defined as men when they made themselves disposable. Um, at the age of 16, 17, 18. And so we, uh, and so this was, this was, this heroic intelligence is what trained boys to, um, to tough it out, to not express their feelings. So know that when the going gets tough, the tough get going, um, to uh, operate outside of their comfort zone, um, to, to do things that, um, that involved dying for the country and knowing that if you died at the age of 17 or 18 and you saved somebody else in the process, um, you know, your family would put a picture of you on the, on the, on the, on the um, credenzo of the cabinet and, you know, always point, every generation would point to you as a hero that, um, that died with respect. And so boys fought for this, 
this um, to, to, to be willing to do this and it was worth more than their life. Well, all of this is wonderful for, for keeping the country away from Nazis, et cetera, um, but it was not so wonderful um, for helping boys develop, uh, express their feelings, say what was bothering them. Um, and so, you know, boys are much less likely to report themselves to a psychologist and um, when they're having uh, suicidal ideations, but they're far more likely to commit suicide. And so, um, and so this is, um, this is obviously not good emotional intelligence. And so, you know, what I'm saying, so what fathers today have to know is that, you know, for the first time in human history, uh, we haven't had to prepare a very high percentage of our sons for war. And so the good, the bad news is that this used to be boys' sense of purpose. And so today, boys have a purpose void. Uh, the good news is boys can be free to develop alternative senses of purpose. However, when boys are raised by single moms, single moms usually are very good at being sensitive to what the, the special, the specialty, the, the special, specialness of their sons, their sensitivities, their talents, and encouraging those boys to pursue their dreams. However, when boys pursue their dreams and they don't have dads involved, what I discovered doing the research for the boy crisis is that, is that the boys do not have the, um, they don't have the postponed gratification to be able to succeed in, in pursuing those dreams. That is, uh, the, the boys do not have the discipline that dads tend to bring to the family as a rule when they are, not, when they don't have a father involved. And so, um, for example, the dads and moms will, dads and moms will tend to um, do the exact same type of boundary setting. Um, dad, they'll both say, for example, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. Um, and dad, the, um, and children will do the same type of testing of boundaries. They'll try to have as few peas as possible before, the, uh, before they can get their ice cream, of course. Um, and uh, kids, kids aren't stupid. And so the, um, but the difference is in the way dads and moms uh, enforce boundaries. And the, as, as a rule, and sometimes this is reversed, um, moms will say, um, you know, the, the kids will want um, the ice cream after they've had a few peas. And um, moms will say, well, sweetie, I said you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas, but I'll tell you what, have this many more peas and then you can have your ice cream. Now the boy or girl has picked up the fact that, ah, I can negotiate a better deal with mom. So instead of having half the peas, let's say, the, the kid has a quarter of the peas and say, okay, I, I've had some peas, now can I have uh, the ice cream? And so mom goes, well, I'm not gonna get into a, he did try or she did try. I'm not gonna get into a, a big fight over a few ice, a uh, few peas. Okay, sweetie, now you could, yeah, all right, you try, but you should have finished your peas, but okay, go ahead and do it. Whereas dad is far more likely on average to say some version of, excuse me, we have a deal here. The deal here is that you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. Um, you know, we had that deal. I know we had that deal. And you know that I know we had that deal. Oh, you're so mean, dad. Uh, well, you can continue saying I'm so mean and whining and complaining, and then there'll be no ice cream tomorrow night either. So I'll tell you what, you finish your peas now, and you can have ice cream. You don't finish your peas now, there's no, there's no ice cream tomorrow night. You want to whine and complain, I mean tonight, um, and want to whine and complain about it, no ice cream tonight or tomorrow night. Now the kid's in a bind. He realizes he has to focus his attention on finishing his peas. That is, he has to focus his attention on doing what he has to do to get what he wants, the ice cream. So what he's learning is postponed gratification and boys raised predominantly by dads. This is amazing, What's, what I'm gonna say now. Boys raised predominantly by dads, only 15% have ADHD. Boys raised predominantly by moms, 
30% have ADHD, and this is girls, I'm sorry, that's boys and girls raised predominantly by dads, uh, versus moms have 15 versus 30% ADHD. Um, and you can see, if you look at that example, um, one reason for why. The boy raised predominantly by the dad is forced to um, finish those P's, that is pay attention to what he needs to do, to have attention focus rather than attention deficit. The boy with the, the mom learns to not at focus attention on doing what he or she needs to do, but to focus attention on how to manipulate a better deal. So the boys raised predominantly by the moms tend to be much better manipulators, um, but they are not good at, um, at, at focusing their attention. And when boys do not have that um, postponed gratification that attention they and they have instead attention deficit they don't do well in school they don't do well in sports they don't do well rehearsing for the Olympics or whatever special um, special uh, gift they have and so they tend to fail more they get therefore less um, less praise from their uh, from teachers less praise from parents less less pride from adults and parents they begin to feel ashamed of themselves and when the, when mom says well you know you, you tried music but you, that you didn't do well at that but you're a good actor too sweetie why don't you try acting so they try acting and they they can't rehearse their lines because they get distracted by some invitation to text from a friend and so they begin to dream but every time they dream they fail and after a while they become afraid to dream and so and when they really become ashamed worst case scenario uh, they may be so angry that you know their mother says they're sensitive and they're bright, but at school they don't get any positive feedback, and so they get angry at the at the at the teachers, angry at their peers. When it comes to boy girl time, uh, the the boys learn that um, girls do not go out with losers; uh, they go out with performers, and so they, they you know they say, "How can I get um, your girls to accept me without being rejected?" And the only answer to that question is pornography, and so they turn to porn, and then they become addicted to porn, and then the girls that they finally do get together with um, feel like they're treated like an object in a porn movie. They withdraw from them, which only proves to them that they were right. They were losers that couldn't attract girls, and then they go back to porn and so on. And in the worst case scenarios, this can lead to such anger that the kids want, say, you know, I'll I'll shoot the people at my school. I'll do a mass shooting. I'll prove to some way, in some way, shape, or form, um, that I was that I should have been paid attention to. I'll make people sorry that they didn't pay attention to me. Oh my gosh! I I mean I I completely followed that line of logic from start to finish, and you just unpacked that so masterfully. And I mean I didn't think starting at peas and ice cream would lead to where you ended up. <laughs> it was. It was brilliant in the way that you did that. It, and, you know, essentially, you just, un, you just solved half of society's problems with peas and ice cream. But, <laughs> you know, the, the point there, and I hope that our listeners, if, if you didn't get that, go back and rewind the tape back to peas and ice cream and start that conversation and listen again, because I think, Dr. Farrell, what you shared is so important, especially in this day and age. And what I heard is that delayed gratification piece is so critical. And that is one of the key things that having a father in the home and an engaged father can bring to the child and to the family. And, you know, in our society, I, in fact, I just had this conversation with my, uh, my three of my boys last night in the car. We were talking about this delayed gratification. And I said, you know, when I was growing up and we wanted to watch a movie, I had to go down to the video store and I had to buy it on a VHS tape, eventually a DVD or rent it rather. And, you know, the challenge was if it was a new release, you had to get there in time 
because they only had so many. And sometimes you'd go to watch this new movie and they'd already all be rented and you had to pick something else or not watch a movie at all. And I said, what do you guys have to do? And they said, we just press a button on the TV and we can watch whatever we want to watch when we want to watch it. And yes. I said, exactly. Right. And so our society today with an Amazon kind of an instant gratification society due to technology, um, that's imperative. And having the father there in the home to teach those skills, even if it's over peas and ice cream, is critical. So, you know, maybe, maybe unpack that a little bit more in, in the sense of delayed gratification, because I think it's, a, it's something that a lot of parents struggle with today, Dr. Farrell, and that's how do they teach that skill set to their kids? Yes, you give um, you, you give a reward for that delayed gratification, and so the the child is always having to sort of choose between, you know, I I have no option but to finish to focus on finishing those peas. And um, you you mentioned before when we were talking about the, um, the 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 different ways that this is built into the natural things that fathers tend to do. In, in the Boy Crisis book, I talk about these nine differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting. And the, the and dad-style parenting leads to certain benefits, and mom-style parenting leads to other benefits. And the, the children who do best have what I call checks and balance parenting. But a lot of the things that dads do are looked at with askance um, by moms, not because moms are bad, but because dads don't know what is a, what's valuable about what they do. Dads don't do their homework as a rule, and they don't talk to their wives about the positive values of what they're doing. And so women can't, moms can't hear what dads don't say, and dads don't know it because no parenting magazine talks about the positive values of dad-style parenting. And so um, I'll share one in relation to, to roughhousing. And uh, typically speaking, um, you know, dads are far more likely than moms to roughhouse. By the way, all these things moms can do. Moms can, you know, can learn how to create postponed gratification. Some moms do do this, and moms who do do this, it really helps the children, especially, um, actually, both the boy and girl children, because both benefit enormously by postponed gratification. Uh, the difference is when it comes to boy-girl time, if your child is heterosexual, boys don't reject girls because they're not um, they're not big performers, whereas um, girls do uh, are much more likely to select among the performers for the boys. So, okay, let's get to the postponed gratification and the, and the whole dynamic here that is oftentimes missed. So let's say, so dads are far more likely to roughhouse and moms are far more likely to look at the dads and go, oh my God, um, you know, um, I'm, I feel like I have just one more child here that's going to, you know, roughhouse with the other kids. And, um, I have, and I just like have one more child to monitor. And so, and then she's thinking in the back of the mind, but you know, the kids are seeming to have fun and don't be controlling and you want the kids to have fun and you want daddy to be involved. So, okay. But I just know that if they continue to do this sooner or later, somebody's going to end up um, crying or hurt. And, um, and sure enough, um, she, mom is only about 99.9% .9 likely to be correct. And she, you know, a few minutes later, uh, or 20 minutes later, whatever, um, you know, the, the father, let's say, says, okay, the three, three of you, they, he throws the kids onto the couch and says, okay, the job here is for the three of you to jump on my back and to pin me down before I pin the three of you down together. Okay, dad, oh, that's great. And well, they, they, they push each, and then they do that. And then, but eventually they, uh, one of them pushes the other one aside. Let's say the brother um, takes his elbow and puts it into his sister 
catcher's eyes, and that gives him some leverage to win at this uh, to be the the first kingpin of the king of the pinner downers. And so the um, uh, and so, but Dad notices that you know, the sister is crying and stops, and uh, Mom is saying, "I knew it! Now finally, Dad will see that I was right, um, and the kids will, and he'll stop roughhousing with them." And the dad goes instead of stopping. The dad goes, "Okay, um, Jimmy, you can't um, stick your um, your elbow into um, your sister's um, eyes like that in order to win at the roughhousing. If you do that again, um, we'll have to stop the roughhousing right away." Okay, Dad. Okay, Dad. I'm gonna do that again. Okay, I got it. Um, and then they go back to the roughhousing. Now the kids are experiencing emotional intelligence under fire. Um, they forget the first time that they do this. They forget that they uh, they, they remember that they they can't do that sticking the uh, elbow in the sister's eye. But then they forget after they get so excited and caught up in the desire to win. And so they do it again. And then Dad says, "Okay, that's the end of the roughhousing for tonight." And mom, and so we'll roughhouse tomorrow night. And mom goes, well, wait a minute. It happened twice and you didn't get the lesson and now you're promising them to roughhouse tomorrow night and the same thing's gonna happen all over again? But the, the key is in the tomorrow night. Tomorrow, the next night, dad says the same thing. The kids get excited, but this time they know that last night they lost the roughhousing when they, when they exceeded a certain uh, limit. And so they then so they then get the lesson the following night. But maybe the other brother pushes the the brother number one a little bit too hard, and uh, and then the and then dad says, um, nope, that that pushing was too hard. Now the kid has learned that there's a difference between being aggressive versus assertive. And so what the child is learning with the sister example was empathy, that, that sister needs to be thought of rather than me just winning being thought of. The second example, the, the children are learning, um, this is aggressive and this is assertive. Ah, I see the difference now between aggressive versus assertive. Now mom agrees with all these things. She will say to, to the kids, think of your sister. Uh, this is to, you know, um, don't, don't be uh, aggressive. But what the, the father is giving the children is the experience of exactly where is that boundary line between being assertive versus aggressive. No intellectual conversation or lecture can possibly give you that experience, that emotional experience. Dad is requiring the children to think of their sister and brother's needs. And if they don't think of their sister's and brother's needs, they don't get what they want, more roughhousing. And so the children learn that there's that if they want what they want, they need to think of somebody else besides themselves. So they're getting not a lecture on empathy and roughhousing, but an experience of it. Of it. And so I backtracked all of this from, from the research from the boy crisis in which I found that children who do who um, have a lot of father involvement are far more likely to be empathetic and so i started looking at part of the behaviors of children that lead to that and found that that the rough housing does lead to empathy but the average father if he said to his mother you know i want to rough house with the kids so i can improve their empathy um, you know, he would like that. That's so counterintuitive um, that you know that the dad would really have to you know have done his research on this or you know read in the boy crisis exactly why that is the case um, because when you know you just say that off the cuff, um, it's not likely to be. It's likely to sound uh, like you're a little bit crazy. I mean, you just described my my household on a daily basis, and that's so much of what Daddy Saturday is is the rough housing and my wife standing back going, "You guys are crazy," but at the same time. 
having that twinkle in her eye watching, you know, dad interact with the kids. And it is so important. And, you know, Dr. Farrell, what I love about the last two examples you just gave are that, you know, for the dads listening, as you can see, you're being intentional as a father matters so much. That's why being emotionally present and physically present at the same time is so critical because something as simple as eat your peas before you get ice cream or a game of roughhousing, there is so many life lessons and you are embedding and modeling so many important traits for your children just in those simple day-to-day -day interactions. And that's why this matters so much. That's why intentional parenting matters. I'd also say I want to thank you for pointing something out that was kind of in the margins there. And it's something I often struggle with with Daddy Saturday is the platform. And then I hear from a lot of single moms. And, you know, look, if we go back and rewind the tape to your first description on the boy crisis and, you know, the fatherlessness is a part of that. If I'm a single mom, I'm looking at that with a sense of hopelessness. But I think you said something really important. So any single moms listening, I hope you got that message, which is you can do those things. You may not do them just like a, a male or a father figure would, but you can still embed those traits in your children. And what's really important is that you access resources like the boy crisis so you understand what those components are so that you can then bring them into your kid's life, either yourself or bring a father figure, a male role model in um, to do that. So thank you, Dr. Farrell. Those were just phenomenal points. And this has been a fabulous interview. As we wrap up here, I've got two final questions for you. One is kind of more of a fun question. It's something I ask all of my uh, interviewees, and, and that is, if you had a boat, I'm talking about a very large boat, uh, one that's big enough you could put a name on the back of it, what would you name your boat, Dr. Farrell? I'd say, this is a question I've never been asked before. Um, I'd probably name it Love. Love. Awesome. Well, most people have never been asked that question either, which is one of the reasons why I ask it. And um, we're going to do something fun with all the responses we get um, at the end of the year for all these interviews. So the love boat, uh, uh, we would call it. <laughs> you have such an original name I came up with. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, it's perfect. And then uh, Dr. Farrell, I know that there is, we could talk for days on this topic and you just have so much research and data and, and I just appreciate all you've been able to articulate here in this podcast. Um, but anything maybe that we didn't get to that you just want to leave our listeners with in, in, a, in a final remark? Yeah, maybe two quickies. One is um, if you read anything in the Boy Crisis book, read the Appendix A on how to set up a family dinner night uh, without it becoming a family dinner nightmare. Uh, family dinner nights are very important. We know that. But how those family dinner nights are conducted are crucial. Second, the issue about being a single mom. If you're a single mom, make sure to focus on the section on if you get a stepfather involved, how to involve the stepfather in a way that is very um, that that is most effective and positive. And most stepfathers are limited to the role of advisor and why it's important to um, elevate the, the stepfather to the role of equal parent. Number two, what that how valuing your the, the biological dad will tend to bring the biological dad back into the family if you know what he does, like the roughhousing, the postponed gratification, and the other seven or nine things that I talk about in the Boy Crisis book. If you, if you read that and say, I now understand the importance that you bring to the children, I need you back again. Men who say, men who hear that they are needed, 
um, will die to be needed, uh, like they did in every war throughout all of history. And so you need to know how to need the, the dad by knowing what he does that's uh, important. Dads, it's important for you not just to hear that roughhousing is good, but to know how, and things like that, but to know how to explain it with love to your wife. Um, and last, single moms. If, you, if, the, if the stepfather and the biological father can't be involved, get your children involved in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and faith-based communities where the, where the faith-based leader is helping um, boy, uh, is getting together other boys your age that the boy and helping them, uh, facilitating them to express themselves so that your boy does not feel lonely and feel like he, he, has, he doesn't have a role model of other boys who are expressing feelings and a good uh, quality role model. There are dozens of things single moms can do. Read that section of the boy crisis on what single moms can do uh, when there's no option but to be a single mom. Fabulous. Well, first and foremost, thank you for the interview. Second, for all of our listeners, go out and get the book, The Boy Crisis, and consume that content. So many great points. Dr. Farrell's unpacked just the tip of the iceberg there for us today. Um, and certainly access the rest of your resources. And speaking of which, Dr. Farrell, where would you like people to go if they want to learn more about your great work? I think um, just doing uh, Amazon has a, right now they have a sale on the Boy Crisis book and it's also available available in audible form. A lot of people like listening to it in that way better. I, I, I and my co-author, John Gray, read, read the, the book ourselves. Um, I think go to Daddy Saturday and you know look at the, some of the sections that you've read. I really, really love the section about stop trying to be a hero and and many of the other sections about creating epic moments that you um, that you wrote about. And um, you know and there's a on the Boy Crisis website. Um, um, uh, if you go to boycrisis.org, there's a whole series of resources listed uh, there that and what the, uh, that that you can go to both um, book wise and video wise and so on. Perfect. Well, thank you, Dr. Farrell. This has been a fabulous interview. And with that, I will say, as always, make it a great daddy Saturday, be an intentional father, be an engaged father, and raise good kids who become great adults. Until next time. Thank you.